0: Well, what a blessing to uh, sing about the High King of Heaven, because that's really uh, the story in Daniel 1 that we're going to look at this morning, and I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible there as we continue our journey through this amazing book. As I've been reading and studying, uh, preparing these uh, messages or this series that our elders felt would be wise for us as a church to uh, listen to and to to go through together i have consistently been been alerted by the commentators that the book of daniel is one of the most comprehensive and stunning books in the old testament if you were to ask me which is the book of the old testament that would probably give more content and have more comprehensive scope about the plan of god and more practical application to our lives and give us most hope for navigating life now as we look for the life to come, I'm not sure I would have picked Daniel. I probably would have scanned through the 39 books, and I might have looked at uh, the section in Genesis that talks about Joseph down in Egypt. I I might have looked at the book of Proverbs and said there is daily wisdom for life. I, I might have found myself in certain portions of Psalms, Uh, Like Psalm 19 that sort of journeys out uh, or chronicles out the journey of uh, a faithful servant of God. I I might have uh, eventually found my way to the book of Joshua or to the book of Judges and said there are lessons I could learn, both positive and negative. And all of that is true. I don't think I would have picked Daniel as the book that is the most comprehensive and the most instructive, and the most hope-filled, and the most practical book in the Old Testament. But the longer I have spent in this book, the more convinced I am that that is exactly right. Now, when you get to the book of Daniel, we we talked uh, earlier on in our series that the theme of this book is very simple: God rules and His kingdom matters more. Everything in the book comes around those ideas. God rules, and His kingdom matters more. We, we noted that in the theology we sang together this morning as we worship. High King of Heaven. That's another way of saying God rules. And that's certainly going to be evident throughout the book. But it's not just that God rules, it is this, that in all the kingdoms of men that matter so much to the people in those kingdoms, there is a kingdom that matters more. And we're going to see that again in Daniel chapter 1. Now, with a book that is so filled with hope and so intriguing in its content and so comprehensive in its scope it actually opens in a surprising way. It opens with an unmitigated disaster. King Nebuchadnezzar bursts in on the scene, and by the time he is done, by the time you get halfway through the book, everything that Daniel held dear, everything that he knew had been destroyed, it had been captured, it had been taken out of its... Location, including Daniel himself. You could say it this way. The book of Daniel opens with an unmitigated disaster of unthinkable proportions. And Daniel immediately wants you to sense the tension that you find in the book. That there is this crisis that you didn't anticipate. And instead of leading with hope, And instead of leading with confidence, and instead of leading with God rules and his kingdom matters more, the kingdom that you assumed was God's, Israel, has been destroyed. If God rules, why are his temple vessels carried off by a pagan king and put into the treasury of his own pagan God? Marduk. How in the world, Daniel, can you tell me as I open up Daniel and read about this unmitigated disaster? How can you begin to tell me that God rules and that his kingdom matters more? I mean, Daniel, if God ruled, you wouldn't be on your way to Babylon. If God ruled, your family would not have been decimated. Your home would not have been destroyed. The city you grew up in would not have been burned. If God ruled, none of this would have happened. Daniel, if God's kingdom mattered more, I don't understand why one of David's descendants, Jehoiakim, is being bound and carried off into captivity. I don't get it. If God's kingdom matters more, I don't understand why His chosen nation is being carted off into captivity, bound in chains. I don't understand why the city that God put His name on, Jerusalem, is is being burned. I I don't get it. By the way, you may be wondering that today as you listen to the news. I don't get it. God, I, I just don't get this. I don't I'm having trouble connecting how you rule and your kingdom matters more with what's going on in my life, with what's going on around me, what's going on in my country, and what's going on in your country. I don't understand how you can say that God rules and his kingdom matters more. Now, have you been there? You ever sat in that tension where it's everything you can do to hold on to your belief? I mean, you believe because you know it's the right thing to do. But you're wondering as you go through these crises that come up and this unmitigated disaster that you never intended or expected to be in, it's everything you can do just to keep your faith alive. And the longer this goes and the deeper it gets, the harder it is to believe. And even if you manage to keep your faith alive by some miraculous means, how can you serve a God who doesn't intervene, who lets his vessels be taken off into captivity and put in the house of a pagan god? I mean, after all, he's the God who said there are no god. there are no idols; they're just. Stones, why bow down to them? They can't do anything. Well, obviously, somebody was able to take your temple vessels and carry them off to the house of Marduk and Shinar. So, how in the world, Daniel, did you navigate this? And more importantly, how can I navigate this? How did you learn to thrive in the middle of these kinds of crisis, the historical crisis that you were in, the theological crisis, the moral crisis, the personal crisis that came? Here you are in Babylon, and you've got to ask yourself, who rules? Who rules over us? And what will become of us? And And, and what will we become? Not just what will happen to us, but what will we become here in Babylon? And so Daniel chapter 1 is the answer to that question. It is telling us the story of how God's servants thrived in a silent sovereignty. Because God appears to be absolutely invisible in all of this. So, let me show you, as we try to answer these questions, let me show you a text uh, I'm going to keep you in, in Daniel chapter 1, and then I want to show you five simple things that Daniel did and his four friend, his three friends did that allowed them to thrive in Babylon. And, and then you and I can learn, and we can ask God, we can dare to be like Daniel. And so the text that I want to show you is in chapter 6, verse 28. And it takes place 70 years after the events in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Two kings, two kingdoms clash. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his gods. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And along with them, in verses 3 all the way down to verse 7, are a group of people, God's people, who are carted off with those vessels to Babylon. And one of those people is Daniel. Now, 70 years later, Daniel is still there. Listen to how he describes his life in Babylon over 70 years. Verse 28. So this Daniel, which Daniel? The one we were reading about, In chapter 1, the one we read about in 2, 3, 4, 5, and now we're reading about him in chapter 6, this Daniel prospered. You see that word? He prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So here we have a servant of God carted off in the midst of unmitigated disaster, and 70 years later, he writes a book, and he says to you, and I want to tell you, that I prospered in Babylon, and I want to tell you how I did it. And the reason you and I need that is because we live in our own Babylon, don't we? We have our own unmitigated crises. We never thought we would end up where we are. When you started out your journey, you never thought it would take you here. You saw people here, but you never thought you would be here. You never thought you would experience this. You... you prayed for other people who were experiencing this, but you never thought for one moment that you would ever be here. Lord, I'm your servant. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying every day. And you know what they always taught us in, in, uh, in little kids' church? Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll what? You'll grow, grow, grow. A verse a day keeps the devil away, and I've been doing two as extra good measure. You know, if one vitamin C is good, I'm doing two. So if one verse keeps the devil away, two is going to keep him far away. And the next thing I know, I'm in this moral crisis. How did I get here? Man, Lord, I I memorized verses. I I read Proverbs every day, and I still ended up in this moral crisis. How did that happen? I never, ever expected to be in this moral crisis. I never expected to be in this physical crisis. I never expected to be in this relational crisis. God, how do I thrive? How do I do what Daniel did? How do I prosper? Daniel says, I'm so glad you asked. And his answer would be this. the, The first step to thriving in Babylon is enduring patiently while God works. Enduring patiently while God works because History is always orchestrated by sovereignty. History is always orchestrated by sovereignty. And Daniel is going to make sure that you know this. He is going to make sure that you understand the crisis you read about in the opening seven verses of Daniel 1 is not outside of God's control. You may not hear God's voice and you may not see God's hand, but God is very much active and His sovereignty is orchestrating everything that happens. You know, if you lived in the ancient world and Nebuchadnezzar showed up at your doorstep with his army and and six months later, uh, your city's, you know, pretty much devastated Everybody's going to say, "Well, we know how that happened. Nebuchadnezzar is legendary. He's a young general in his father's army. He everywhere he goes, his military prowess is stunning. He's responsible for tumbling down the world power of Assyria. Every battle he fights, he wins. Everywhere he goes, he's he he he, he comes in as the victor. Everything he touches turns to gold. Of course. That's how what happened to Dehoiakim happened. That's how what happened to those temple vessels happened. That's how what happened to Jerusalem happened. That's how what happened to those Hebrew uh young youths happened. It happened because of Nebuchadnezzar and, and Daniel says, no, 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 no. I want you to I want you to know how it happened. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave some of the vessels of the house of his God, of the house of God. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar did here in Jerusalem was orchestrated by the hand of God. You say, Well, how do you know that? Well, a hundred years earlier, there was a king of Israel named Hezekiah. And he had a friend, a prophet named Isaiah. And one day Isaiah came to him. You can read about this in Isaiah 39. And he said to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. I want you to hear what God has to say. Well, thank you, Isaiah. I'm always ready to hear what the Lord might have to say. You know, you you and I are good friends, and and I know that you speak directly to God. I mean, you told me about that time you were in the temple and you saw the Lord high and lifted up, and wow! I mean, on and I I mean, I'm so thankful for your ministry to me when Sennacherib's armies came, and and we prayed together, and then the Lord sent an angelic host and destroyed those armies. So yeah, I'm ready to hear whatever the Lord says, and. Isaiah says, okay, well, here's what the Lord wants you to know. The days are coming, Hezekiah, when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away and they will be officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. That is 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar showed up. Now let me ask you a question. Who is actually at work here? It's God. And so when Daniel found himself in Babylon and he remembered what Isaiah wrote, he knew that he was right in the middle of God's will. This is exactly what God said he was going to do. And by the way, can I just say this? When you're in a crisis... Run to the very safest place you can be, and that is God's will. There is no safer place to be in a personal crisis, in a moral crisis, in a theological crisis. Name your crisis. There is no safer place to be than right in the center of God's will. I have said this, I don't know how many times over the last two weeks. I am absolutely convinced by the providential ways in which God has been at work, that this cancer is God's good and perfect and acceptable will of God for my life. And I would rather be in God's will with cancer than to be out of God's will without it. You say, Wow, Pastor Sam, that's super great. I mean, that's, man, that's awesome. And no, 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 that's not coming for me. You need to understand this. This is not coming for me. Because I'm made of the same stuff that you're made of. And I have the same fears and the same anxieties and the same doubts that you have. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit is no respecter of persons. The same Holy Spirit lives in me, lives in you. And no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult the path No matter how disappointing. I mean, think about Daniel on his way to Babylon. It couldn't get any worse. And Daniel says, let me tell you something. When I found out I was in the will of God, I prospered. I prospered. And not only did God tell Daniel that he was in the will of God a hundred years earlier through the prophecy of Isaiah, he told Daniel exactly what he was supposed to do when he got there by a letter that he got from Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. And and Jeremiah says, all right, all of you people in Babylon, Daniel and the gang, I have a word from Yahweh for you. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons. Multiply there. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Wait a second. Dangerous. Hang on, Lord. I got it. Now, Jeremiah, I know he's your prophet, and I know you guys talk, um, but I just want to check and make sure there isn't a typo here because he just sent a letter, and he says we are supposed to settle down in Babylon. Okay, I can buy that. We're supposed to have houses. Well, I don't have one yet, but I think by chapter six, I'm gonna have one that I'm gonna pray in before I go into the lion's den. So I think I got that base potentially covered. But this big piece here that I don't get is like praying for the welfare of this city. I think you meant pray for the welfare of Jerusalem, not Babylon. I think Jeremiah is hungry. He's persecuted. He's been down in a well for a while. He probably got the names mixed up. Pray for Jerusalem. I think that's what you meant. And God says, no, no, no. I told you to pray for Babylon. And it's welfare. It's success. That's the word welfare. It's success. Pray for the success of this city. What? God, do you not know that your vessels are sitting over there in the temple of the god Marduk? God says, yeah, I put him there. Do you not know that your people are stuck here in Babylon? Yeah, I, I, I put them there. Do, do you not realize what Nebuchadnezzar and his boys are doing over in Jerusalem? In case you're wondering, they're not praying. They are praying, but it's not the kind of praying that, that you're thinking about. It's not P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. It's P-R-E-Y-N-G. They're taking prey, and your people are the prey. And God says, I know, I'm the one orchestrating all that. Oh, so you want me to pray for the welfare of this city? And God's answer is, Are you willing to do that? Daniel says, listen, if you are going to thrive in a place like Babylon, you have to endure patiently by following what the Lord has given you to do. And then there's the second thing. You need to live faithfully, and you can see that in verses 3 through 7. And the reason you can live faithfully is because royal strategy is always trumped by divine sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar had a brilliant strategy. He would go to a place like Jerusalem, and if they surrendered, he would show kindness and mercy, and and he, and he would be known as a great king uh, who, who had great power but also great mercy, and he would take the choice of the young people and he would bring them over to Babylon. He would take care of them. He would relocate them, He would re-educate them. He would rename them and he would reposition them in his kingdom and he would give them high positions in Babylon. And he would pay for all of it. That's exactly what you see here. He relocated these Hebrew boys to Babylon and they were trained in the language and culture and wisdom of Babylon. They were provided for, they would eat the king's food directly from the king's table. Food that was the finest in all of Babylon. It had been offered to Nebuchadnezzar's God, and the food was rich. He was preparing them to serve in the political structure. They uh, they were to stand in verse uh, 5. After three years, they were to stand before the king. In other words, they were to be high officials in his kingdom, advancing his purposes and overseeing his business and enforcing his policies. And he gave them new names to reorient their religious identity and to show respect and deference to the religious structures of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had big plans for these four men. But unbeknownst to Nebuchadnezzar, God had much bigger plans for them. And he was using Nebuchadnezzar's little plans to position these four men exactly where he wanted them, at the right place, at the right time, to do a much bigger mission. Nebuchadnezzar is about to meet the God of heaven. And he's going to meet the God of heaven, and he's going to know the God of heaven, and he's going to see the power and the majesty and the glory of the God who is silent in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is going to see that glory, he's going to see that power, he's going to experience that mercy, and he's going to open his mouth, and he's going to say to the entire world, there is no greater God than the God of Israel. There is no greater God than the God of Daniel. This is the God who raises up kingdoms and gives kingdoms to men and tears down kingdoms there is no greater God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had no idea he was going to meet this God in chapter 1. All he knew is he had some Hebrew young man that he was bringing back to Babylon, and he had a brilliant strategy that he was going to work. And he told Aspenaz, the master of his units, now you make sure you take care of these boys. You feed them. You train them. You prepare them because three years from now, I'm going to bring him into my, my presence, and I'm going to test them. And if it goes well for them, it's gonna go well for you. And if it doesn't, as then we're gonna have a chat. Well, I'm gonna have a chat because you're not gonna have much left to talk with. And unbeknownst to Nebuchadnezzar, the sovereignty of God was at work. And unbeknownst to these Hebrew boys, the sovereignty of God was at work. Can you imagine being dragged away to Babylon? Can you be imagine saying, now look, for three years you're going to study all of the pagan literature, all of the wisdom of Babylon, all of the ways in which we interpret dreams and how we see signs and wonders and how we advise the king when to go to war and when not to go to war. You're going to be a master at all of that. We're going to train you. And Daniel's like, I can't. That's pagan. We have the Torah. And then, oh, by the way, we're, we're going to give you new dress. We're going to give you a new dress. Uh, you're in, And in chapter... Uh, 4, when uh, Daniel's friends are cast into the furnace, or chapter 3, rather, when they're cast into the furnace, they're all wearing Babylonian dress, official Babylonian dress. I'm going to give you new names. Listen, your names are fine if you lived in Jerusalem because, you know, uh, Daniel means God is my judge, and and all of your names are about this little God uh, who couldn't even protect his city, so I know you're going to want to be uh, recognized as followers of the big God who uh, defeated your little God and whose vessels are in the temple. So we've got some new names for you. And all of this is in front of four Hebrew young men, probably 15 years of age, who have absolutely no choice. And you might have gone back to the dormitory after class one day and you might have found the four boys sitting around a bed going, I don't know how much more of this we can take. Can you believe what we learned today about how the world was created? That flood story that Moses told us in Genesis. Can you believe what they think? Cuneiform is the hardest language on the, wor- in the world to learn. It's terrible to write. We got to write it on these stupid little clay cylinders, and we have Hebrew. Hebrew's a good language. Hebrew's great. Aramaic's good. And all the while that they think they're being driven by Nebuchadnezzar's strategy, there is a much bigger authority in play. And his strategy is getting these four men to the right place at the right time for an amazing mission. And by the way, that's what God's doing in your life. So what do I do while I wait for God's strategy to unfold? And that's the third thing Daniel says. Well, you obey humbly. You obey humbly. And that's what you see in verses 8 through 16. And it all comes down to a matter about food. Daniel and his friends determined they cannot eat the food that Nebuchadnezzar has so graciously put in front of them. Daniel set his heart. He resolved that he couldn't eat the food. Why? Because of its defiling of his life as a Jew. There were three things that Daniel determined he could not do in Babylon. He could not eat food that had been offered to idols or that was ritually ritually unclean and prohibited by the Torah. And the food in front of him was both. He determined that he could not bow down and worship an idol, and he determined that he could not pray to anybody other than God. Those were the three things he refused to do. And he refused to do them because the scripture, the Torah, clearly prohibited those things. These were not sort of applications. These were not preferences. These were clear, very, very dynamically presented prohibitions from the God of heaven. You cannot eat food offered to idols. You must not bow down to any other idol. You must not bow down to any idol. And you must not pray to anybody else except me. And in Daniel chapter 1, he's. Tempted to eat food offered to idols in Daniel chapter 3. His friends are tempted to bow down and worship an idol. And in Daniel chapter 6, he's encouraged to pray to somebody other than God. Everything else Daniel did. He settled down in Babylon. He owned a house. He prayed for the welfare of the city and for the welfare of God's people in the matter of their names. They submitted in the matter of their education. They submitted In the matter of their language and speech, they submitted. In in the matter of their occupation and their vocation, they submitted. In the matter of their dress, they submitted. They served Nebuchadnezzar faithfully and graciously and accommodated themselves where they could, but they also obeyed God faithfully where they had to. Now, how did they accomplish all of this? You'd say, well, boy. It says right there, Daniel Purpose. It was Daniel that made the decision. Oh, and look at his brilliant uh, negotiating skills. He knew just how to work Aspenaz. He knew just how to work the, uh, the the chief of Aspenaz's servants. He knew how to, he was very tactful. He knew exactly how to get what he wanted. And Daniel would say, no, 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 no. That's not how it happened. For the second time, I want to tell you something, Daniel. says, Look at verse 9, and God gave. God did this. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Everything that Daniel asked for was impossible. How can you offend the king? How can you endanger my head? How can you endanger your own lives? I mean, if we feed you this... We know it's going to happen to you. And the king has been very clear about the physical condition he wants you in. It's super clear that these people were highly skilled in all areas of science and that the Daniel diet that is being identified here was not one that was going to make you healthy. People make a lot of money off this Daniel diet. You can go out and buy books on the Daniel diet. It's supposed to make you healthy and fit. Well, the Daniel diet that was in Nebuchadnezzar was actually one that would weaken you. And that's why the master of eunuchs was terrified. So how do you explain how Daniel got his request? How do you explain that 10 days later, he's actually in better shape than everybody else? And how do you explain that for three years, God kept it up? And the answer is there isn't an explanation other than God. God did this. God gave Daniel favor. And then fourthly, Daniel says, listen, I served successfully. Look at verses 17 through 20. Their obedience is vindicated and honored by divine sovereignty. For the third time in this chapter, Daniel talks about God giving. In chapter 1, verse 2, God gave Jehoiakim over. In chapter 1, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor. And in chapter 1, verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. You say, well, I know how they got that. They studied hard. And they did. I I know how they did that. They persevered. I I know how they did that. Uh, they 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 just applied themselves, and all of those things are true. But Daniel would say to you, that's not how it happened. Here's how it happened. God gave us the learning. God gave us the skill. And God gave me an ability to do something that nobody else in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had. God gave me the ability to go right into the realm of God and get an interpretation of a vision or a dream. And the rest of the book is going to show you that's true. God positioned these men, behind all of this was the invincible and often invisible sovereignty of God who was protecting, preserving, enabling, and giving favor. Now listen how this all ends. At the end, verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, that's Aspenaz, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar! Uh, We have had a a tremendous time. You have a brilliant program here. This three-year program has worked quite well with these uh, four boys. And I'm so glad to bring them to you today. And uh, they're ready for their examinations. And so they come before Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 19, the king spoke with them and among all of them. So it's not just these four, it's a whole crew of them. You know, ask Manassas, here's the class, O King. You know, look at how well they look. Uh, we've been doing calisthenics, and uh, we've got a little exercise program for them. But, of course, the real reason they look so well here, O King, is the diet. And you been so gracious to give them all this good food right from your table. And just like you told me, I made sure that that, that diet was before these men here. And you can see how well they all look. Oh, and, and uh, uh, the, the the academic program that you designed, O king, that worked well. Uh, had a few rough spots here and there. A few tears. Had to repeat a few classes a time or two. But here they are, and they're ready for their examination. And the king said, uh, thank you, Aspenaz. Good work. Now let me examine the men. And verse 19, the king spoke with them. This is personal. The king did this. And among all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now remember, they have, they have Babylonian names by now. But here in this moment, their Hebrew names are, are called out to you because all of a sudden, Daniel wants you to realize that what is going, here, going on here is not because of Aspenaz, and it's not because of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not because of Nebuchadnezzar's gods or the gods of Babylon It is because of the God of the Hebrew boys. And that's why their names are in Hebrew here. It is God who did this. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Not just better than their peers, but better than any wise man in the kingdom. They served successfully because they were vindicated and honored. You know, wise men in Babylon for years studied the writings of other wise men. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it, that the wisest man in Babylon that ever had existed in Babylon's history would not write wisdom down? Could it be that wise men for centuries to come in Babylon would study the writings of Daniel? Could it be? that the book we're reading was also in the annals of the wisdom of Babylon and the wise men of Babylon for centuries would study this book. I don't know. I do know that 450 years later, wise men from the east made a long journey to a tiny little place just outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem because they were studying and they had concluded that a certain king had been born. Daniel 7 talks about a king, the son of man who receives a kingdom and dominion and power, and his people are going to shine like the stars of heaven. And it's interesting that they are coming looking for a king who has been born, and there is a star associated with this. I don't know. I'm just laying out a suggestion that as part of Daniel's service to Babylon, he might have had a bigger impact than even we know. Well, here's the final thing, and we're done. Look at verse 21. Daniel says, now look, I want you to know that this went on for 70 years. I never saw my homeland again. I never went back to Jerusalem. I never saw my family. I never saw the temple. I never saw the beautiful hills and mountains surrounding. I never saw uh, the the Mount of Olives. I, I never saw all that I grew up with, all that I held dear. I never saw it again. But I want you to know something. I was around until the first year of King Cyrus. What's what's the significance of that, Daniel? Well, Well, it just means this. I was satisfied fully at the end. You know, it's interesting in Daniel chapter 10, verse 10, we're told that Daniel actually lived until the third year of Cyrus. So why does he tell you, and why does he make such a big deal about the fact that he was still around and still serving faithfully in the first year of Cyrus? What happened in the first year of Cyrus that was so monumental? Something happened in the first year of Cyrus that Daniel had spent his entire life longing to see and praying for God to do, and that was this that someone would allow his people to go back to his land, to rebuild his city, and to rebuild God's temple. And in Ezra chapter 1, there is this fabulous moment where the most powerful king on the earth at the time, a man named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, issues an edict. It's very similar to the one that's in the British Museum called the Cyrus Cylinder. And in that edict, he commands and he supplies that God's people would be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. He provides safe passage and he provides all the money they need to do this. And Daniel is saying here, now I was there in the first year of Cyrus. Can I speculate a little bit with you? As one of Cyrus' chief officials, could it be that Daniel was used by God to prompt Cyrus to make that decree? It might have even been the last official thing Daniel did, the last official public proclamation he wrote. Can you imagine if God would allow Daniel that privilege to write the decree from the hand of Cyrus that would let his people go back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, and back to build a temple? Daniel says, I'm not going to tell you if he did that or not, but I can tell you this. I was there, and I'm satisfied. Listen, when you spend your life in the will of God, even if it's in a hard place that you never thought you would be, even if it, it, it it's, it's the opposite of everything you could have hoped for for your life, if you will serve God, if you will be faithful to God in that hard place at the end, you will be fully satisfied. I think if Daniel could stand here and talk, he would say, Pastor Sam, you need to know something, no matter how this cancer comes out, if you will stay in the will of God, you will be fully satisfied. I I think he would say to my family, listen, if you will remain faithful no matter what happens to your dad, you will be fully satisfied. I think he would look at you and he would say, look, if you will just be faithful and endure and obey and serve in that difficult place, in that hard space that you never thought you would be in, that you never desired to be in, that that you you saw in others and you thought, that's never going to be me, and here you are, if you will just remain, and if you will just be faithful, and if you will just obey, at the end you will be satisfied. Daniel says, you're going to have to do the same thing that I had to do. You're going to have to believe what somebody wrote. I had to believe what Isaiah wrote, and I had to believe what Jeremiah wrote, and you're going to have to believe what God inspired me to write. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because there's always that moment where can you give a a biblical reason for why you're responding the way you're responding? I've had to ask myself that question. And often I can't. I've got a good reason, but I don't have a Bible reason. And at some point, we're all going to have to come to a place, no matter what our crisis is, where we look at God and we say, God, I'm just going to trust what you wrote. Daniel trusted what Isaiah wrote and what Jeremiah wrote. and I'm going to trust what Daniel wrote. And when that happens, you and I will be fully satisfied. Lord, thank you for being such a good God, such an amazing God. Thank you for this story that's so much more than a story. Lord, I've I've read this chapter so many times, and and as I've been getting this sermon ready, I realize I'm looking at it through a very different lens, the lens of my own crisis. But all of us have crisis. We're all going to look at this chapter differently. But, Lord, at the end of the day, there is a lens that matters, and it's the lens you gave Daniel. And three times in this chapter, he tells us that you were responsible for everything that happened. You were responsible for the crisis in chapter 1, verse 2. You were responsible for protecting and preserving your servants in verse 9. And you were responsible for honoring and vindicating and enabling your servants, chapter 1, verse 17. And when your servants rested in your sovereignty, Daniel said, I want to give testimony. I was fully satisfied. And God, I want to be fully satisfied. And I know every person here. I want my family to be fully satisfied. Lord, I want to lead my family. I don't want my family to lead me. I want to lead my family. I want to lead my own soul. And I know that's true for everybody here. We want to lead well. We want to serve well. We want to obey well. And Lord, we are holding on to the promise that you gave us through Daniel that if we do that, we will be fully satisfied. We will prosper in Babylon. In Jesus' name.